Yale Podcast Network. TV either destroys people and pressures them into mediocrity, or it heightens their own sense of what's possible. From the campus of Yale University, welcome to a brand new season of To Live and Dialogue in L.A. I'm Aaron Tracy. We're starting off the season with a really special guest. I feel like I don't even need to give him an intro. If you're choosing to listen to us right now, I am betting Ron Howard has been in your life since you were a kid. My sister and I grew up on reruns of Happy Days, far and away my favorite show when I was young. But let me just remind you of some of the movies you're forgetting that he directed. Splash, Willow, Parenthood, Ransom, The Paper, Apollo 13, Cinderella Man, The Da Vinci Code, A Beautiful Mind. That last one got him Best Picture and Best Director Oscars. So in addition to everything else, Ron's also one of the most successful producers of all time. Here are a few of the movies and TV shows he didn't direct, but produced and helped bring into fruition. Eight Mile, Friday Night Lights, Inside Man, Sports Night, giving Aaron Sorkin his first job in TV, Felicity, 24, Empire, and Arrested Development. Ron's movies refuse classification. Most of the dominant American film directors have traditionally worked in one genre, often taking ownership of it, like Hitchcock with psychological thrillers or Tarantino with his revenge epics. The directors who constantly change genre and tone can sometimes feel like they're just a director for hire, taking on whatever assignment is in front of them rather than having their own vision. But assuming these filmmakers don't have a unique voice simply because they cross genres is ridiculous. Like Scorsese or Billy Wilder or Mike Nichols, Ron seems to enjoy challenging himself by reinventing himself with every movie. You know, we don't think any less of Mike Nichols' original voice simply because he made The Graduate and he made Working Girl, or Scorsese because he made Taxi Driver and The Age of Innocence. Similarly, Ron made some of the best feel-good movies of the 80s with Splash or Cocoon, but also made fantasy and sci-fi epics with Willow and Solo. He made great thrillers with The Paper, The Da Vinci Code, and Ransom. And he's got a handful of historical character studies with Apollo 13, Cinderella Man, and Frost Nixon. To me, Ron's best films all center on an idealistic hero fighting to make his life better, or more virtuous, or more meaningful, or more worthy of love. Basically, his heroes are trying to find transcendence. Whether that means fighting to make a relationship work with someone from a different world, or solving a grave injustice through journalism, or standing up to a criminal president, or winning the heavyweight title against impossible odds. They're feel-good movies, but they're also smart, tight, and character-centered, rather than plot-centered, and emotional without being Moglin. As viewers, we see ourselves in Ron's passionate heroes, the best of ourselves, who we want to be. Which, of course, all starts with the script. So I'm really excited to talk to Ron about some of the extraordinary screenwriters and TV creators he's worked with over the years. I could not be more excited for this. One final thing before we jump in. We've got an amazing group of guests coming up this season on the pod. We've got James Patterson, literally the best-selling writer in the history of the world. We've got Richard Curtis, one of my all-time favorites, who wrote Forwardings at the Funeral, Notting Hill, Love Actually, and the recent movie about the Beatles, Yesterday. We've got Dan Pink, 
the best-selling author. Dan and I have a fascinating conversation about when people do their best thinking, when they have their best insights, and how to structure your day if you're a creative to maximize your output, a subject I'm pretty obsessed with. We've also got my oldest and closest friend, Sam Dolnick, who runs audio, TV, and film for the New York Times, shepherding their articles to TV and film, and having an amazing run with it. And he's one of the main creative forces behind the podcast, The Daily, and the TV show, The Weekly. We've got multiple Oscar-winning writer and director Tom McCarthy, who made Spotlight, and who's also a great actor, starring in my USA pilot a couple years ago. We've got the return for the third time of Michael Rausch, the creator and showrunner of Instinct on CBS, which just ended a two-year run. We have the actor Ben McKenzie, who's starred on three different drama series, including Gotham most recently, and who's now working more and more behind the camera. And we may finally get Jesse Stern, who's writing on the new CW show Nancy Drew, and has written and produced tons of great TV, and is also like a personal mentor to me, and one of the best writers and one of the best thinkers about TV drama that I've ever met. We're also working on getting one of my all-time favorite actors, which looks like it may actually happen, and a bunch more. So do us a favor and subscribe to the show now, and leave us five stars if you dig the show so that other people can find us. And now, join me for our conversation from the Yale Broadcast Center with Ron Howard. On this podcast, we mostly focus on, you know, writers and TV and film. And so having you here with us feels like a really amazing opportunity to hear a little bit about how you like to work with writers and sort of approach scripts generally. So I thought I could ask you about, you know, a few of the screenwriters you've worked with and what that process has been like. Well, it's a pleasure for me and actually something that that I almost always intend to really underscore when I talk at places. And no one ever really wants to talk much about writers. So kind of never goes anywhere. I, I toss off a few compliments, but it never really becomes uh, the, you know, the, the discussion um, uh, that I think it deserves to be, uh, especially in the way um, that, uh, that I like to work. Yeah, and it feels like it's changing a little bit with TV. I mean, writers, you know, in movies are still sort of also brands, but in TV, now that they're showrunners, certainly they do have more of a platform than they used to. But I mean, that brings me to to your first sort of fruitful collaboration. It looks like, um, tell me if I'm wrong, but that would be with screenwriters Lil Gans and Babalu Mandel, who you worked with, what, on Happy Days? And then they wrote for you Night Shift, Splash, Gung Ho, and Parenthood. Right. Uh, absolutely. And and um, Lowell was a kind of a wonderkin Gary Marshall protege who had done great work on uh, The Odd Couple and was sort of brought in to help salvage or rescue uh happy days and did a brilliant job uh at that and was just one of these people who was immediately respected by everybody d- despite the fact that he was a, you know a, a young young guy smart funny and uh you know and, and and worthy of all the responsibility that gary was giving him and uh just prior to the end of my contract I'd been directing, oh, a movie for Roger Corman and television movies that I would sometimes write, always exec produce and, and direct for NBC. And, uh, and I, I was talking to Lowell, you know, about my dream of being a director and, and uh, hinting that I might, not, I might not come back when my contract was up because I really wanted to pursue directing full time. Right. And, and he said, well... If you ever think you want to direct something and you think you need a writer, I'd love to talk to you about it. And I, I was flattered by that. Uh, even though we were, you know, it'd become pals working on the show, 
I, and we always got along great. Um, I still thought that was that was you know interesting and meant something to me. At, around the same time, I met Brian Grazer, who's now my of course my partner for all these decades at uh, Imagine Entertainment, and uh, Brian and I were both having a lot of luck in television as producers and and myself as also as a director, um, but having a kind of a tough time cracking the feature world. And I fell in with Brian. We started hanging around. He had an idea for a project that I uh, thought was interesting. We didn't get that one off the ground. But then he had another idea that was basically inspired by a real event, something he read about in a New York Times article. These, these two guys who ran a prostitution ring out of the New York City morgue. Right. But he thought we didn't have to worry about the true story. We needed to come up with a comedy idea. That was a moment when R-rated comedies <clears throat> were really in vogue. Right. I thought it was funny. I thought it was irreverent and 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 uh, would, would also sort of work in opposition to everyone's expectations for what I would try to do as a feature director, something that was kind of edgy and sexy and, and, and R-rated and so That's forth. smart, yeah. And I suggested Lowell. And uh, Lowell brought in Babalu, who was not his normal writing partner at that time. Oh, Babalu was not on Happy Days? No, he, I think he worked a little bit on staff or consulted, but he was not really a full-time writer on, on, on Happy Days. But, but, but he did some work, and Lowell certainly knew him and thought he was hilarious. And uh, uh, so their partnership was really formalized around Night Shift. Oh, that's interesting. And they just knocked it out of the park. It was, a, you yeah. know, they wrote a hilarious script. I loved working with them. And during that process, leading up to actually getting a green light to make the movie, you know, Lowell said, I, you know, this is, I would sit with him and he'd say, you're, you're kind of like a, an editor in chief here. And I've, I've always thought of myself um, sort of that way in terms of even the way I, I, I direct a movie. Hmm. I, you know, I certainly have a point of view. I, I, uh, depend on that. I rely upon it, but I also see it as a sort of a jumping off place and foundation. And I just love working with writers. Now I'm a member of the Writers Guild. I've written a few things. I I'm okay. <laughs> I'm not inspired. I'm good with structure. I'm good with sort of character motivation. I'm, you know, kind of identifying thematics and I've gotten stronger and stronger in, in story conversations over the years, but I've never, ever been a great scene writer or inspired creator of, you know, crackling dialogue and that sort of thing. But given all that, I've just I've I've, I've loved my association with uh, with writers over the years and I, I value them. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, this sounds kind of funny, but well, a lot of my best friends are writers. <laughs> <laughs> Don't admit that to anybody. Um, with Lowell and Babalu, did you, I mean, I guess it worked out so well on Night Shift. You just said, all right, I got an idea for a guy who falls in love with a mermaid. Well, it wasn't my idea. That was a, another Brian Grazer idea. And in fact, okay. there, there, there was a, uh, a script written by Bruce J. Friedman. And the, the story was interesting. The script, the script wasn't very successful. Um, and it was an original idea of Brian's that he hadn't been able to solve. And in the wake of a night shift, which was uh, well regarded and a, uh, a real turning point for all of us, you know, Brian asked asked uh, uh, Gans and Mandel to have a look at Splash, and we we began working on a, a take uh, for that movie that was uh, you know fairly different, but led to this fascinating struggle <laughs> with Hollywood. Because uh, there was another competing mermaid project. Oh my god! At that moment, and this was to be 
uh, directed by Herbert Ross, oh, yeah. uh, uh, produced by Ray Stark. These were, wow. you know, uh, elite A, you know, A-listers. Yeah. Starring Warren Beatty and Jessica Lange. Oh, my God. And so even though our script was was pretty well thought of, um, you know, no, no studio wanted to compete with that project. And Brian Grazer, in a, in a, in a kind of a display of uh, or demonstration of why he was going to wind up being a big success, was uh, unyielding. And we kept searching and searching. And finally, the only studio that was willing to have a real conversation with us was Disney. Hmm. And this is pre-Michael Eisner, pre-Touchstone. In fact, this movie, Splash, wound up being the first Touchstone project. And slowly but surely, we actually kind of worked to get both the assurances that it could be PG, because I was terrified they were going to make the mermaid have a have a, a bikini top or something, <laughs> right. uh, wear a bathing suit or something. But so we, we we got those assurances and a budget we thought we could work with, and we got the movie made. But uh, it was... Uh, it again a real testament to the writing uh because uh you know it was it was a strong script a lot of people however said it doesn't quite know what it is it's not it's it's not broad enough to be a broad comedy it's not you know really romantic enough to be a romance it's it's uh you know what is it what's the tone and i kept thinking that that was a silly question that uh you know a movie could be all of those things and if the characters worked and the ideas worked uh, in a cohesive way, which I thought Gans and Mandel's script did, uh, you know, it, it, the movie could work. The thing about the early relationship with Gans and Mandel was that because it came out of TV, there, there was this sort of trifecta of virtues. One was, you know, that, that both guys were just smart writers and they had that and that wasn't beaten out of them through tv it was sort of it was sort of strengthened tv either destroys people whether they're actors directors or writers and pressures them into mediocrity or it heightens their own sense of what's possible and what their capacity is that was the case with gans and mandel the other was a very dynamic rewrite process which again of course is, is is very well understood you know, when you come through television, yeah, that dialogue, that running uh, collaboration uh, between the producers, sometimes the network, actors, and, and certainly the writers, uh, the writers themselves, and then ultimately the showrunner. And so that ongoing evolution was something that Gans and Mandel always, always leaned into and wanted more of. Hmm. Uh, so they weren't guarded. They weren't defensive. And yet they could stand up for their ideas. And so that, and, and plus people coming out of television just really can work hard and fast. And fast, yeah. And well, they can make Did you ever happen. have a writer's room with them? Any version of a writer's room? I never really did, no, no. The actors, you know, weren't going to wander into the Happy Days writer's room. That's not the way that show uh, mm-hmm. ever, ever uh, worked. And, uh, and later they... Worked on a couple of TV shows, I'd imagine, but I was never close enough to those shows to to really be in the writer's room uh, with them. But I would be, uh, you know, Lowell in particular is uh, just a consummate problem solver. Over the years, he's continued to be, you know, a really valued consultant friend. uh, And whether it's a comedy or a drama, he understands the sort of the math of 
of a story right. and a character's journey and, and the kind of, um, uh, you know, the sort of emotional logic uh, versus intellectual logic uh, that some have to sort of reconcile themselves within a story for an audience to really, really engage. And so he's, uh, you know, remains a really valuable resource in, yeah. you know, in my life and a great friend. Well, let me ask you about another one. Um, Ransom is one of my all-time favorites. Uh, you worked with Richard Price on that one. He was such great. an extraordinary screenwriter. Yeah, what was that process like? Well, he was actually coming in and doing a, um, a, a massive uh, rewrite on that on that project. And, okay. And and, uh, and I don't remember. I, th- I think he wound up getting sole credit on it. But it, it had actually had been done twice before. It, it was uh, uh, originally done for live TV, I think. Hmm. And like a Playhouse 90 or a Craft or one of those uh, in the live TV uh, uh, era of, of and and uh, then it had been a feature film starring Glenn Ford and now we were talking about uh, doing it again. It was a project that I was very I had been very in, interested in the workings of a cr- criminal group. My, my family had once been exposed to. Uh, a threat of, of, of a kind of a kidnapping hmm. scenario. And we've been warned about that and uh, understood that it was a gang and understood sort of the makeup of that gang as, at least as law enforcement thought they understood about, about the, uh, about the situation. And that had resolved in safety and without incident. Thank God. Good. I'd always thought about what make, made a group like that tick. And, and when this story came along of ransom, I thought it was it was interesting, and it was actually an opportunity to explore this within the the, the framework of that story. Mm-hmm. So the when I came on board, Gary Sinise and Lily Taylor and Leah Schreiber and that gang and Donnie Wahlberg were not really terribly well defined, but Richard really understood what it was I was going for there, and uh, took a lot of um, pleasure and kind of creative uh, excitement out of fleshing those characters out. Right. So would you have a lot of conversations with him and tell him about your, you know, story with, you know, your brush with, with these kinds of people and he would go off and, and write a draft for you and you give him notes. I mean, is that sort of the general process? Yeah. I mean, it, it was, it happened faster than that because it was, uh, the, the script itself was not something I developed. It, I, I came on board. Okay. Mel Gibson came on board. Uh, Scott Rudin was a producer. Brian Grazer became on board. Uh, and it was so it was it was all uh, something that was going to happen. Still, there, you know, there were these kind of story sessions, which uh, often Brian and Scott Rudin would be a part of. Sometimes Mel would be a part of them as well. And yeah, I would talk about it, although my circumstance didn't really relate to this all that specifically. Mm-hmm. But uh, the idea of looking at this sort of, uh, you know, criminal uh, adventure from both sides and the the sort of the culpability of the Mel Gibson character was all rich material that that we all re- really were, were interested in fleshing out. Yeah. Uh, so that it, it was, uh, you know, not a, a, a one dimensional uh, good guy, bad guy uh, kind of a of a of a piece. And uh, it was fascinating to work on. And uh, it was also challenging. And and because I I was trying to really service the narrative as a thriller. Uh, that would move, um, be dynamic, have action dynamics in place. 
But I also really wanted the characters to just uh, be as fascinating and surprising as possible, which was, you know, so up Richard Price's alley. Yes. I had known Richard Price before because he, he at one point had a, a project that I was interested in directing. This was before Ransom. Mm-hmm. And I'd met with Richard and gone out on one of his research trips. He went with the uh, the crime scene unit that would go and record uh, the crimes, sort of a CSI kind of a, a group in New York City. And uh, and I went out a couple of nights with Richard and with uh, and, and his contacts in the NYPD. Ultimately, I, I didn't choose to to get involved in that project, but uh, Richard and I really clicked. I also asked him to do some rewrite work and some help on on a movie I did called Backdraft, oh, cool. where he just came in and just did a day or two of sort of pitching and tweaking, and it was very helpful. Uh, but um, he and I just hit it off. So when Ransom came around, uh, it was a collaboration that I was looking forward to. And we've, we haven't had an opportunity to work together since, really, I, I think. I think we got together on one project for a moment that uh, uh, didn't wind up getting made. But, uh, you know, I, I really I really valued that experience. And bringing Price onto Backdraft for, for a day or two, is that something you do often that you'll bring a writer that you trust and you've worked with before uh, or who you think will be good with the material and you'll bring them on set? Very, very rarely. I mean, I, oft, I often bring writers on set, but I much prefer to stay with the original writer if possible. Mm-hmm. I don't like the carousel of writers as a as a solution. I'd rather uh, sort of roll up the sleeves and keep a collaboration going. Right. I really value that that collaboration, and I like to take it on into post production if possible. And in uh, oh, that's great. In many circumstances, I wind up with uh, the writer spending a, a couple of days in the editing room with me, coming to rough cut screenings, and continuing to really participate. Uh, in the, in the process of refining uh, the movie, you know, I've I have final cut. I know I get to make the, those decisions, but but right. I just value their input. You know, my my father was a uh, a character actor, but he also was a TV writer. He wrote for the Flintstones. He wrote for the TV show called The Rookies, and I he wrote, know that. Uh, yeah, he wrote Gentle Ben episodes where he was also a, a recurring character, and some other shows. And he wrote a lot of plays and and spec movie scripts and, huh. uh, uh, and, and things like that. And so he, I, I was always exposed to him and this, this process. And he, he so valued what writers brought to projects and thought it was terrible the way they were dismissed, exploited, un- disrespected, uh, in various yeah. ways. And, uh, so I think, I think there's a part of me that just early on just believed that those initial, scenes, those ideas have a kind of a particular value because they did come from a very organic place. You know who, who really subscribes to that theory is Clint Eastwood. Yeah, he often just shoots first drafts, right? And doesn't even mess around with the writer's words. He often will reject subsequent drafts that have been done by other people developing a project and go right back to the source, the very first draft. Yeah. And, you know, he, he might have an idea or two. He might edit a little bit. But for the most part, that's what he really trusts. Uh, and uh, he's made some some wonderful uh, movies. Yeah. While, while, um, Let me ask about your collaboration with Peter Morgan. You've done two movies written by him, Frost, Nixon, and Rush. Um, how did you first meet Peter Morgan? I met Peter Morgan uh, because the woman who was running development at that time for Imagine, uh, Karen Kahila, was a huge fan of uh, some, some TV work that Peter had done. 
And uh, before he'd really broken through, I met with him to talk about developing a project, which ultimately he chose not to get involved with. But we just, I just really liked Peter. I then read the play, uh, Frost Nixon. Right. And I thought it was great, but it was almost immediately becoming a bidding war situation. I talked to Peter a little bit about it. He said he hadn't even thought about it as a movie. Um, he, by the way, he was a screenwriter, not a playwright. It was his first play. He'd done some, some, um, some great work in, in television and also the queen. So I knew that, uh, that a number of really, really interesting filmmakers were circling around this play and the early reviews were strong. So my, my wife, Cheryl and I kind of looked at each other and said, well, maybe we should just go to London and see this play. So that's what I did. And uh, I, I, I saw it and literally called my agent at intermission and said, I'm going to want to do this. Oh, my God. That's amazing. You know, and I would do it with this cast. I mean, this is not cast dependent in my mind. They're great. And, you know, it was Martin Sheen and Frank Langella. Uh, not right. Martin Sheen. Uh, 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 Michael uh, Sheen. Michael Sheen. Sorry. Uh, it was Michael Sheen and Frank Langella. And uh, I didn't know what the studio might insist upon, but I knew I would make it with them. I, I just could picture the adaptation and the staging and the, you know, the, the way to um, turn that into a movie. Michael Grandage's direction there at the Donmar uh, warehouse was already, it was already very cinematic in, mm -hmm. in, in, um, in the approach. But anyway, it was a pleasure. And I, uh, ultimately I talked to Eric Fellner from Working Title, who was also involved in the project. And we agreed to let both companies imagine a working title work together on it. And, uh, uh, we, you know, prevailed in our in the effort to get Peter to commit to to us to 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 do the movie. Yeah, and I had a great time with Peter because I, I had to convince him to preserve as much of the play as we did. Oh, really? He wanted to change. Oh, what? he was so ready to tear it all down and start over. If that's what I thought we should do, you know. And I was, in fact, a big defender of the play, uh, and although it did evolve in ways that we were all very satisfied by, did more research, learned a little more about it all. Uh, you know, I, I had a, a real affinity for uh, an appreciation for David Frost's character and what he had actually achieved as a television producer, set aside what he did as a journalist. And I, I wanted to emphasize that a little bit more. I was interested. I, I had just done Cinderella Man. So I was very interested in what Peter himself described as, as, as the sort of the, uh, the boxing parallel. Um, oh, and, that's great. Yeah. And, and so I wanted to shoot it that way, but I also said, but let's also strengthen up the corner teams. Hmm. We need to spend a little more time with them. I'd like to see, I'd like to see some of these, um, battles play out a little bit more from their point of view and actually have an emotional investment in them and, uh, and their hopes for the outcome. And, uh, Peter embraced that, and we put together a fantastic cast, and I and I had a, yeah. a great a great experience. Wow. And I'm you know I'm just remembering I came into Imagine a couple years ago just for a general meeting, and all over your walls are random script pages, almost like um, wallpaper. <laughs> was that your idea? Or was that Grazer's idea? No, I I, it, I don't know. I, it wasn't my idea. I'd love to claim it. I was certainly. <laughs> it's very uh, cool for writers coming uh, in. Yeah. Well, we uh, look. It's it, the the play is the thing. And you can be inspired on the day and come up with, and an actor can ad lib in a remarkably additive way. But 
it starts with the story and the way that story gets sort of fleshed out and, and written. And, and uh, writers have always been vitally important to what, what we've done. And again, those are those really are the creative relationships that mean the most to me. Akiva Goldsman is a dear friend. I was going to ask. Yeah, he wrote three movies for you, right? A Beautiful Mind, Cinderella Man, and The Da Vinci Code. Yes, uh, and also did big rewrites on uh, on The Missing, and uh, continues to be a uh, you know a great friend. Is developing projects at Imagine now and producing things with us. And uh, you know he's he's uh, he's remarkable. Uh, you know Bob Dolman who wrote Willow and Far and Away. Can, you know remains a really a really uh, dear dear friend. Uh, so those, David Kep is a, is a, is, is somebody who I've enjoyed working with. The paper, right? One of my all time favorites yeah, of your, the, uh, of your the movies. The paper yeah. was great. And then he, he came in and wound up sharing credit on, on, uh, on Angels and Demons, uh, with Akiva. Um, and then also wrote Inferno, the other Robert Langdon. And it's just a great, you know, great guy, very talented guy. Uh, and who I enjoy spending time with. And so what's what's sort of the key that you're looking for in a writer? You know, it sounds like there's a lot of overlap between the writers you've talked about. Um, a lot of them, it sounds like people you enjoy spending time with, of course, people who have similar sensibilities, people who are able to work quickly. You know, is there anything else you can think of that sort of binds all of these different writers you've worked with together? Well, they've got to be, you know, I mean, I want, I want them to, to have the strength of their own convictions uh, and yet, you know, sort of a willingness to to collaborate because I I do feel that in order to direct something I have to I have to make a connection with with, with the material and I need to I need to believe in those scenes before I'm going to be out there uh, in uh, in the pressure cooker trying to trying to stage them mm-hmm. and uh, and so it's just finding that 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 balance that that equilibrium but it it's it's inspiration it's creativity it's the ability to take ideas to uh, the, the next level and, and go and, you know, beyond what I, what I feel like I'm capable of doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it's a particular kind of, of intellect and personality that can really do that at an, at, at an elite level on, and on, on a consistent basis. Right. So, yes, our sensibilities need to be similar, but I, I don't want somebody to do my bidding. I want somebody to write great material. That's great. And that, you know, thrills me to be to be in those kinds of creative uh, conversations. You know, development hell is an apt term um, because it's often frustrating. And and um, and and there's a low ratio of projects being developed and actually made. And that's hellish. But the excitement of the creative problem solving is something that I find, you know, really rewarding, you know, at least while I'm in it. We don't always get the result we're dreaming of. But I really, I really enjoy it. I once had an opportunity to meet with Robert Redford, who had a project that he wanted me to direct that he was thinking of starring in. Mm-hmm. And I actually knew that I, that subject was not something I thought I could, I could really uh, do well with. But I, I wanted to meet Redford uh, <laughs> and, and talk to him. And so yeah. I, I, I took, I took advantage of the, of the opportunity. And he was directing Quiz Show at, the, at that time. Um, Paul Atanasio, another great writer. Yeah, who, he's who been I've on the show. Also he's worked amazing. with, although not, none of our work together has ever been produced. But he's, oh, he's really? a great guy and a, yeah. a very talented writer. But uh, the question I really wanted to ask Redford was this, and, and I loved his answer. I'll share it. I, I said, you know, when we're in development meetings and we're talking about you know a family drama, inevitably you're going to talk about ordinary people. 
If you're talking about a spy thriller, you're going to talk about Three Days of the Condor. <laughs> if you're talking about politics, you're going to talk about all the president's men. If you're talking uh -huh. about Westerns, you can talk about either Butch Cassidy or Jeremiah Johnson. I said, you know, it goes on and on. Romance, the way we were. Yeah. Yes. And I said, what do you, you're involved with all these things intimately uh, as a producer, star, as a director, star, as, or, or director, producer. What's going on there? And he said, it's interesting. All the titles that you're citing, virtually all of them, were projects where small group of us loved the idea, believed in the themes, believed in what it could say, but they were almost impossible to wrestle into shape to the point where we were about to give up on them. And in, in every instance, we'd sort of take one last do or die, you know, sort of week or two to meet and see if we could actually solve it or not. And sometimes the answer would be not. But in the in you know the ones that you're referencing are the ones that got made and uh, you know and we did we did solve them so they were they were projects that we believed in but they weren't necessarily easy to shape you know maybe that's the answer Gary Marshall used to talk about episodes of TV shows and um, because I was you know thinking about writing thinking about directing as a young guy and and and, and Gary was a natural kind of mentor. Uh, and I remember telling him an idea and he said, well, now that's an idea that practically writes itself badly. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. So, uh, you know, I, I think there's some I think there's some clues there uh, that if, <laughs> if it comes together too easily, maybe it's, uh, you know, maybe it's not the freshest, that's uh, smart. richest idea. I love that. Um, and so I, we've kept you here for a while. I know you've got to go. Um, hey, by the way, yeah. and this is jumping out of order. And I know. Yeah. But. I, could I, I'd love to just say one more thing about Akiva Goldsman. Oh, have, I would love that. Yeah, I'm so curious. But, uh, and it kind of goes along with what I was talking about with Redford. There are two projects that I can think of that sort of fall into the category that Redford's talking about. One of them was Parenthood, where we loved the idea, but Gans Mandel and Brian Grazer and myself could not solve it. The script kept coming in kind of flat, kind of pedestrian, kind of ho-hum. And at a certain point, we turned around and said, let's take a more global view, make it an ensemble, and let's really explore the subject of parenthood uh, and worry a lot less about structure and a lot more about the themes and the ideas and the touchstones. And in one pass, it completely turned around and became a go movie in, in no time. Huh. The other one was A Beautiful Mind, which was... Uh, you know, uh, b based on real events, a real character, based on Sylvia Nasser's um, biography. Uh, but for a year, it floundered. And Akiva Goldsman was just miserable because he loved the subject. Brian Grazer loved it and was so upset that it couldn't be cracked. At this point, I wasn't really working on it. And at, at a certain point, Akiva thought, I am going to apply an idea that I had in college to make, to write a script that was a horror movie. And ultimately you would come to understand that the horrifying characters were figments of his imagination of a schizophrenic uh, individual. Right. And, and he moved away from the, from the book and the, and the absolute truth of the nature of John Nash's hallucinations and applied this idea and it elevated everything. And in a single draft, it, it sort of went from, uh, you know, a noble idea that was struggling to something that was really an inspired movie screenplay. Uh, 
That's so and great. So it's that kind of spark of um, it, creativity, but supported by a sort of a, an intensity and a creative endurance that I really appreciate in the in the greatest screenwriters. And do you find that you can get that equally from a project that you you know hear a pitch on and develop from the ground up? And from, uh, you know, a spec script that comes in off the blacklist or, you know, a spec script that comes in, you know, sort of fully fleshed out? It, you know what? It just varies because it, it and that's what's so frustrating uh, about about development. And the greatest screenwriters in the world do not bat a thousand. They don't come close right. because screenplays are, you know, in, incredibly, it's incredibly fragile. Movies are very fragile. Um, you know, you'll forgive a novel, uh, a slow beginning. You'll forgive a play, uh, you know, uh, 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 an awkward third act if the first two acts are great and the performances are incredible, you know. But but you you won't forgive a movie much of anything. Uh, hmm. And uh, uh, and then there are other factors that come into play. Somebody does a, does another movie that's you know that's similar. Right. Um, and a, a key. Um, you know, a key, t- a key turning point or a twist in your, in, in the story that a writer's worked on for two and a half years is suddenly sort of uh, exists in another project. And, sure. you know, happens all the time. you have to pull that out. And so, you know, all, all of these things uh, work, uh, you know, in, in, in opposition to, uh, um, to, you know, screenwriting being a kind of a, a, a rational field of uh, endeavor. <laughs> it's, it's pretty, it's, it's, <laughs> yes. uh, it's a high wire act. Emotionally <laughs> yeah. and creatively. Yeah, for sure. And by the way, I just wanted to ask, because I'm such a big fan of the paper, did that come into you? Did, did Kep write that, um, you know, uh, you, that came to you as a full script or as a pitch? That came to me as a full script. David had written it with his brother, journalist, Stephen Kep. It was very strong. We didn't change very much. The, the Glenn Close character was written as a man. Hmm. Uh, and uh, we it was my idea to, t- to turn the ca- make the character female. But, you know, we changed, like, Almost no dialogue at all. Oh wow! We just and, and uh, Glenn made it really, uh, really work, and the yeah. studio supported the idea. But that was that was a blast. But but we did go through a rich rehearsal period where um, you know things kept evolving and improving, uh, you know, right along. So uh, it's part of the process that I really enjoy is sure. seeing seeing you know where where else a script can go without. Yeah hopefully throwing uh, babies out with bathwater. And and on TV projects, and we've talked mostly about your your films, but on TV projects, I mean, you produced, obviously, you know, Arrested Development that, you know, Mitch Hurwitz wrote and Felicity with J.J. Abrams and Sports Night with Aaron Sorkin. Do you get involved with those writers or do you sort of try to say a little bit more hands-off if you're not directing? If I'm not directing, I, I you know, have, have uh, been, you know, available to read and throw out some comments and, and participate, but I've, Never really rolled up my sleeves and, uh, you know, worked, you know, in the writer's room uh, on Arrested Development, for example. But, you know, fun, fun to be around for the sort of the shaping and the and the formation of it and 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 fun to to spend some time um, going through the the arcs and and throwing in my two cents there. But I but nothing like nothing like what I do when I'm uh, 
when I'm when I'm going to be directing. Right, but I'm sure you know it was very important to those writers, especially because they were so early in their careers, to have you, you know, getting their backs with the studios, with the networks. Um, even if you weren't in there in the writers' room, I'm sure you were, you know, protecting them in many ways. I think they appreciated, uh, you know, always appreciated our our support. Although, you know, I got to say with with. Uh, with, with, with JJ and Aaron, I was never, never really on point with them. I mm-hmm. always just, uh, always just a fan that, uh, you know, their, their, their scripts were, were, were great from the first moment. Yeah. Um, okay. So, so I asked you, um, you know, for a scene, uh, from, you know, a work that you weren't involved in and you picked this scene from, uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Yes. This is, you know, written by Lawrence Haubin and Bo Goldman from the novel by Ken Kesey, of course. Um, the scene does not need much setup. Jack Nicholson as McMurphy has been placed in a mental institution against his will, and he's facing off against Nurse Ratchet, who won't let him tune the institution's one television set to the baseball game that he wants to watch, um, unless he can get all the other patients to vote for it. Um, so let's let's play the scene, and then we'll just quickly talk about it before we let you go. Sure. Want to watch the World Series? Come on in, pal. This could be a big moment for you. Now, you want to watch a baseball game? You want to watch baseball? Just raise that hand up. Just raise the hand up. What do you say? Sorry. Bantini, old horse. What do you say? You want to watch the ball game on TV? Huh? Want to watch the ball game? Baseball? World Series? What do you say, pal? You tired? Just raise your hand up, Bantini. Watch the ball game, huh? Okay, all right. What about you, pal? All we need is one vote. Just one vote. Just your one vote. That's all we need. Just raise your hand up and your buddies can watch the baseball game. I'm... Jambo, you remember, don't you? October, the banner, the stars. Oh, say can you. The World Series. Raise your hand up, Jim. By the dawn's early. Just raise your hand up, polite. So, Brad, what about you, pal, huh? Want to watch the ball game? Want to watch the ball game, huh? Just one vote. Just raise your... Gentlemen, the meeting is adjourned. For Christ's sake, isn't there one of you fucking maniacs that knows what I'm talking about? Mr. McMurphy. Huh? The meeting is adjourned. All right, just wait a minute, will you? Just one minute? You can bring the subject up again tomorrow. All right, Chief. You're our last chance. What do you say, huh? Just raise your hand up. That's all we need from you today, Chief. Just raise your hand up one time. Show her that you can do it. Just show her that you can still do it. Just raise your hand up. All the guys have got them up. Just raise your hand up, Chief, will you? Huh? Come on. There's got to be one guy in here that's not a total fucking guy. Mac? Chief! The Chief! Ah! Chief! Nurse Ratchet! Nurse Ratchet, look! Look! The chief put his hand up. The chief put his hand up. Look, he voted. Would you please turn the Would you please turn the television set on? Into the tub. The chief please. has got his Come hand on, up right there. Get in the chief voted. Now, will you please turn the television set on? Mr. McMurphy, the meeting was adjourned and the vote was closed. But the vote was ten to eight. The chief, he's got his hand up. Look. No, Mr. McMurphy. When the meeting was adjourned, the vote was nine to nine. Ah, oh, come on. You're not going to say that now. You're not going to say that now. You're going to pull that henhouse shit now. When the vote, the chief just voted. It was 10 to 9. Now, I want that television set turned on right now.
kicks. Kofax kicks. He delivers. It's up the middle. It's a base hit. Richardson is rounding first. He's going for second. The ball's in the deep right center. Davidson over in the corner. Cut the ball off. Here comes the throw. Richardson rounding first. He goes into second. He slides. He's in there. He's safe. It's a double. He's in there, Martin. You look at Richardson. He's on second base. Kovacs is in big fucking trouble. Big trouble, baby. All right. Here's Tresh as the next batter. Tresh looks in. Kovacs. Kovacs gets the signs from Roseboro. He kicks once. He pumps. He fires. It's a strike. Kovacs' curveball is stabbing off like a fucking firecracker. All right. Here he comes for the next pitch. Tresh swings. It's a long fly ball. And he left center. Oh man, that's such a great scene. It is. What made you pick it? Uh well, it, first, it's one of my favorite movies ever, and uh, you know, and I've, I've read the novel, I've seen the play, and I think the movie version of that scene is is the most powerful in 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 uh, in, in a lot of ways. And of course, Milos Forman's staging of it is uh, you know is 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 extraordinary, simple, and 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 yet you know it 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 uh, you know it, it it creates tension while it's also funny. What yeah. I love about the scene is that really the central thematic notion of the entire story is really played out here. It and and he wins. Yeah. And uh and he finds his own way to win. Yeah. A, yes, and he finds his own way to win and it's remarkable because it's exact it's everything that he we want him to be. He's the you know, he's he's the maverick, he's the rebel and he and yet What's brilliant about it is that it's setting the stage for uh, what will ultimately be, you know, uh, uh, McMurphy's tragic, you know, sort of outcome. Right. Uh, and, and and yet, brilliantly, you know, he, he still will, you know, the, the, the spirit of what he represents will still have, have prevailed in, right. to, to some yeah, extent. Yeah, it's so well done. That, right. So, yeah. that's so exactly. it's great that this is just such an interesting, unexpected way to demonstrate, so imaginative. To, to sort of demonstrate the power of his personality and this as a and his you know as a as a as a protagonist you know that that he's 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 going to he's going to he's going to fight this this uh you know this system uh and uh and it, so it's it's wildly entertaining and yet you know it deals with sort of all the ideas of the movie while offering up this, these great performance opportunities. So to me, yeah. it's just a brilliantly written scene and, uh, uh, and, uh, and, and, and just one of my favorites uh, in movies. And it, right, and it does feel like sort of a metaphor for the writing life a little bit that he is able to create, you know, a baseball game out of thin air, out of, you know, just his imagination. You know, when you're stuck in a corner, you know, come up with something new, come up with a new idea and, you know, you'll get people to rally around you. Um, yeah, yeah. Will and, it will it into existence? You know, yeah, through, the, through the power yeah. of your of your imagination and your spirit. Uh, yeah. And uh, and he does that. Uh, and uh, you know, and and yet the you know his his antagonist won't will not forget this. Right. Yeah. For anybody who's you know also watching the movie, you know the the scene ends just with a very you know going closer and closer and closer on Nurse Ratchet as she's clearly growing angrier. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. 
Uh, um, so great, great movie. Great. Well, great this was so incredibly generous of you, Ron. Thank you so much for, uh, for talking to us today. Th- thank you. Thank you. A lot of fun. Take care. Yeah. Okay. Bye. 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 And there you go. Ron Howard. I'm now recording this a few days after the interview. Ron sent me a really sweet email saying he could have talked more about process with writers and wants to come back on to do that. What an incredible guy. I love that anecdote he told about taking a meeting with Robert Redford just because he wanted to meet Redford. It's like, doesn't he know all he has to do is call Redford and say, this is Ron Howard, I want to have lunch, and Redford would definitely say yes. He's the best. All right, back soon with some amazing guests. A huge thanks to Ryan McAvoy here at the Yale Broadcast Center for making all this happen. Ryan had to come in on a holiday weekend to record this, so can't thank him enough. See you all next week. <laughs>